worship this morning to some man-made idea of who God is. But I pray that our idea of who you are, dear Father, our view of who you are, would be high and lifted up, dear Father, to who you have revealed yourself to be in the scriptures to us, dear Father, the God who is holy, our God, the God with whom there is salvation, our God, the God with whom there is hope, our God, the God who forgives our God. And now, Lord, I pray that you would help us to draw near to you, dear Father. May we draw near to you, dear Father, in worship. And I pray that you would, Lord, speak, dear Father, as Ryan comes and shares this song and as James comes and brings your word. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Those of you guys uh, who don't know me, my name is Ryan Caldwell. I'm 23 years old. Um, I've been involved in the uh, college ministry here ever since it started. And um, one day, uh, just kind of looking around at all my friends and people that I know, and it, it, it really bothered me at the time that I mean, it still bothers me that there's just this, this generational gap that starts at 18. And I've watched too many good people fall away. And um, these words just kind of came to me just, just as my prayer that not just my generation, but any generation, if they, were, if they would just get to the point where they could be desperate for God's love and to be with God and to be by God, that lives could be saved and this, we could turn just so many things around. So... That's pretty much uh, what it's about. As we get older, this world gets colder. Once we needed you, next we come unglued. Lord, make this generation desperate for you. And Lord, make this generation desperate for you.
so Lord, keep us safe, so we're desperate for you. God, don't let us fall away, keep us near and safe, help us stay true. God, our hearts, oh Lord, humble us so we're always desperate for you. make this generation desperate for you. Lord, make this generation desperate for you. Desperate for you. Desperate for you. so uncomfortable right now. Um, not nervous, but uh, I wanted to get a haircut before I came, and uh, for real, uh, and I just didn't have time. But I, then I rationalized that away and thought, well, Jeff Caldwell never gets a haircut when he gets up here. So I was cool with that, and then I got up this morning and I put on this really sweet um, t-shirt, because I'm with college people most of the time, so I didn't think it would really offend anybody very much if I wore a t-shirt to preach in. And I'm not on staff, so I can't get fired, so I'm thinking that's cool. And um, it says, like, uh, this is our hope, this is the promise that beauty will rise out of the ashes. And it says it all down this, and I walk out, and my wife's like, no. And she points, and I'm like, oh, great. She's like, what would Miss Chi and what would your father say about that t-shirt right there on stage? And I'm like, oh, for real? So she made me do this, so I'm just not comfortable very well up here yet. So I'll, I'll work on this gig here. And the hair thing is weird, I know, but I'm working on that too. Um, have you ever been somewhere that you're better known as someone else's something? Like, that's how I feel right now a little bit too, because our church has grown so much. Like, hey, I want you to meet Bill's wife or Jenny's dad or Mike's boss, or how about, hey, this is so-and-so's kid, right? Like, you've been there before? Me too. That's exactly how I feel this morning, and I'm probably better off telling you who I belong to than telling you who I am. So I'll just do that. Um, for the Wildcats, I'm Ben and Sue's kid, Okay. Um, I'm Erica Miller's husband, the VBS lady. Um, I'm Kent and Renee's brother, the canoe trip people. I'm Scarlett and Tim Mott's uh, brother who run this small group that I've heard is amazing. I just never get a chance to go. I'm Roro's brother. So if you had kids that have been through fifth and sixth grade ministry, I'm Roro's brother, which is funny. Or probably my favorite is I'm Ben Payton, Rosa, and Kent's dad. Or the best one of all is, hey, that's Sumo's dad. Uh, so that's me, like that's who I am. And I have the privilege of working right there in that Sunday school room through that double pane glass with the college ministry. And that's what this message is born out of. Um, I asked for this, um, so he wasn't looking for a day off. Um, I asked him to do this because I want to let the church know about the 80-20 vacuum, okay? And we'll talk about all about that in a minute. Um, I had to do some work at one of Erica's, uh, this is just a funny story, at one of Erica's old teachers. So where she went to high school, I had to go back and do some work at his house about a few weeks ago. And when one of his friends walked up, they all knew my wife, but they didn't know me. So he introduced me, beautiful, as Erica Claypool's husband. Isn't that great? Like her maiden name and everything. And I'm like, 
all right, that's cool, you know, and I just kind of let that slide and just kept on working. And later he realized what he did. He's a real sharp man. He felt terrible about it, so he's apologizing over and over again. But what he didn't know was Erica dumped me five times before we got married. So it's a privilege, like, for her just to be called her husband. I'm good with that, right? Like, I'm good. So that's my introduction for you. That's who I am. Uh, today I'm continuing the series on investment, and I want to talk to you about venture capitalism, Okay. In the business world, a venture capitalist is an investor that takes a risk on a new or a young business that may or may not produce great returns, okay? So that's the risk in venture capitalism. If you hear that word, you realize he's putting his money into something young or new or innovative that may or may not produce any returns at all. You know, it's a true gamble. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Of course, I'm not here to talk about business today, but venture capitalism is alive and well in the church and in our homes. Every parent in here knows exactly what I'm talking about. You invest your whole life and your whole heart into 18 plus years of life only to watch them graduate and then pray that the investment pays off, right, in a life well lived. That's venture capitalism. You know, you take this small entity that you are given by God and you pour and pour and pour and invest and invest and invest. And no matter what anybody says... There is no formula, am I right? There is no follow this three-step plan and you'll produce this and it'll look great. That's not how it works as parents. That's not how it works as a church either, guys. Um, it's the same exact thing. As a Christian parent, you invest the cross, you invest the church, you invest the Bible, you invest your faith into their lives, and then you pray, pray, pray that the investment holds as parents. As youth ministers, that's what we do. Like any good investor in a business, the investor in the lives of young people it, be it a parent, a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, a youth worker, or a pastor, must evaluate the success of the investment. We have to look back and see how are we doing. You know, we have to calculate some way, not pragmatically to say, oh, we're going we're gonna to just can the whole youth group idea because it doesn't work, or we're going to can the whole fifth and sixth grade ministry idea because it doesn't work. We don't want to be pragmatic about it, but we do have to look and see what are the results, what's the production, what are we getting from our investment in these young people, you know? And if we don't do that, then that would be poor stewardship on our part. So as we look, guys, as we look and we take a look at that, we have to watch carefully the lives of the young adults, okay, that have gone before these teens that are going out now, they're looking at these lives of these other young adults that we've invested into. And they're either learning from their successes or they're watching them in their pitfalls, right? And so they're watching and we need to be looking too to see how these investments are paying off. How many of you guys are teachers in here? Just by a raise of hand. I won't make you stand. Do we have some teachers in here, some educators? There's a few of you guys in here. And I want to talk just, I want to begin the conversation about investing in young people, investing in young adults, okay? These are not kids. At 18... Um, just out of curiosity, how many of it drives you guys just absolutely insane to hear an 18-year-old referred to as a kid? Does that, does that kind of bother you? Kind of bothers me a little bit. Like, um, they are still, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that more in a little bit. Um, it bothers me a little bit. They're growing up, for sure. Um, but these teachers in here, investing in the lives of young people all the time, okay? And let's just look at it this way. My wife's a teacher, too. One of the toughest things for us to do is go out to the mall or go to a movie, or go somewhere and see one of her old students, somebody that she, she put into, somebody she invested into, and realize that that student had all the potential in the world. She'll walk away from the conversation and say, man, he was a funny kid, he was a sharp kid, he was a good kid, he, he didn't get great grades, but he had good charisma, I really thought he was going to go somewhere. And a few years later, she sees him after graduation, and his life's not really going anywhere. And it's so disappointing for her. 
And as investors in people in the church, I wonder when we see people out and when we see them out and when we look around and you look and Joe's no longer here or Billy's no longer here or Anna's no longer here or somebody's no longer in the seat next to you, somebody that you might have poured into, how does that affect us? Does it hurt our hearts? You know, when, when we spent youth group time with people, I ask my college people all the time, who's not here now that used to be here all the time and where are they? And why don't we know where they are? Um, so with the teachers in here though, let's, let me put it to you this way. What would you do if you found out that 80% of your students forgot how to read or do elementary math? That'd be terrible, wouldn't it? Like that would be considered a bust in the, in the public education system. That would be considered a bust in any kind of education system. If 80% of the kids forgot the elementary, uh, uh, math or forgot how to read, that would be atrocious. But let's take it one step farther than that. Worse yet, what if you found out that 80% of your students who became parents found no need at all to send their kids to school? Think of that. Like, that would really be terrible. Think of the, the fast track the society would be on. In church, I want to tell you that the 80-20 vacuum is essentially that. It's 80% of the young people that we pour into, if statistics are true, and these are national statistics. And Pastor and I talk about this, Donald and I talk about it, Tommy and I talk about it. I don't think that southeastern Michigan tracks to national statistics. We're a little behind the curve and maybe a little more conservative, and, I, and that's good. But if national statistics ring true, 80% of the young adults that we pour into and we invest into will leave the church never to come back. Or when they do come back, they're in their 30s, the mid-30s, raising families and bringing back children. Most of them will never even carry on the tradition of coming to church for their kids. That's a scary vacuum. 80-20 is a scary number. When you think that all of this, and we only retain 20%, and I think we do a good job here invest, investing into young people. My friend Amy Myers handed me a Christianity Today article entitled Believers. It opened my eyes to the reality that the church must face. Our invested into youth are leaving the church. I'm going to back up so I can see that clock. That benefits both of us, okay? <laughs> From the view I had, that digital wasn't reading at all. Um, she, she gave me this article one day called Believers because she knew that my heart is in with college young adults, okay? She knew that. So she hands me this article and says, you really need to leave, read this. These are startling t statistics. So I read over it, and they were. Are invested into youth at leaving the church at a rate faster than ever before. It's called the 80-20 vacuum, and it's happening in almost every church. I think these statistics are going to come up somewhere. The percent of Americans claiming no religion doubled in two decades from 8 to 15%. In two decades, claiming no religion. Now, th now that doesn't mean Christian. That's across-the-board religion in America doubled from 8, approximately doubled from 8 to 15% in two decades. The nuns, or those people claiming no religion at all, for, from here on out referred to as, as the nuns, was the only group to have grown in all 50 states. The only group. Okay? To have grown in all 50 states. 22% of 18 to 29-year-olds claimed no religion. That was up from 11% in 1990 to now, to 2008. When this survey came out, that nearly doubled in two decades. 73% of the nuns came from religious homes. 66% of those nuns would call themselves deconverts. In other words, they would not even associate with the religion that they were brought up in. Young Americans are dropping out of religion at a rate of five to six times the historic rate. Five to six times the historic rate. Young Americans are dropping out of religion. 
As I began to look at the role of the college adult in the local church, I came across a starting with statistic. Oh, sorry, that's a double print. This is both troubling and shocking to me as a layperson in the church. What happened to all the moments of great resolve in these young lives? What happened to that? What happened to the moments that you're going to see? You guys don't get to see it as much because they're in Sunday school, but in, a, in just another hour, 30 teens are going to pack into that area and raise their hands and worship. And if that's true, out of those 30, 80% of them will not be doing that in five years. So what happened to that? What happened to those moments of resolve, right? Um, what happened to all the moments of great resolve in their lives? The commitments that were made at youth camp, the unbreakable faith that came from a summer mission trip, the friendships that seemed inseparable among young youth groups. But 80% of that will all fade away after high school graduation. Where has the resolve of the young men and women gone in our church? I began to seek God daily for an answer to the 80% vacuum that sucks our students from the fullness of the church to the emptiness of the world. This message is a result of those prayers pleading to God on the behalf of the 80%. We, the local church, have done a great job at creating environments for moments of great resolve. Church camps, mission trips, Christian schools, teen services. The list of Christian incubation stations go on and on, right? There's certainly nothing wrong with any of these things, and all of them are necessary tools of the church to encourage growth and maturity. However, when the resolve of the retreat is a distant memory, 80% fall away. When Snowblast is done, 80% of the commitments may not hold. When 5th and 6th grade dogs mission trips is gone, 80% of those commitments made may not hold. We have to look at this church. It's, it's staggering. Uh, 80% fall away in the wake of regret that floods our churches when denying Christ didn't seem like an option. The aftermath we are left with are a hostile war zone and dangerous jungles that entrap the people whose resolve has become regret. God began to clearly show me that we all have moments of resolve we all have, that have become great regret. God began to clearly show me that we all have moments of great resolve. Some of those will undoubtedly become great regrets and that he is interested in our moments of response. The Christian life is one of great resolve. Just to take the first step in giving your whole life over to Christ is a moment of great resolve. Do you agree? I mean, it takes say, to say my whole life I surrender to you is a moment of absolute resolution to Christ. It takes an act of great resolve. Post-salvation, every worship service we participate in, every sermon we engage in, every moment studying our Bibles is a call back to the resolute commitment that we made to Christ. Whether we made it at a snow blast or here in a worship service or two weeks ago when Tommy was preaching or whenever it was, every act like that is a resolute moment where we go back to Christ. Can we all agree that this is a safe place to establish Christian resolve? Like, that's what we do here. You get that. When you walk through those doors, the entire environment is made so that this becomes an easy place for you to say yes to Christ and no to the world. It becomes a place where resolve is supposed to happen naturally. That's what Snowblast is. We don't go there trying to make it difficult for kids to give their life to Christ. We go there trying to make it easy for them to see the truth of the gospel. We create these moments for great resolve in the church, and we do a great job of them at that. But what about the 80% that don't stick? Um, the local church in general has done a great job at creating safe, safe environments, right? Let's look, just real quick, a list. Youth camps, youth groups, mission trips, Bible clubs, small groups, Sunday morning service, Sunday school, fusion, worship service, right? We do all this so that commitments and re resolution is made easy. In Matthew 26, if you have your Bibles, we're going we're gonna to follow along. If you could pull that down, we'll go to Matthew 26 here in a second. In Matthew 26, Jesus goes out of his way to make things uncomfortable. 
He goes out of his way to take a very lethargic moment, a moment where him and his friends are just dining around a table and make it very uncomfortable, okay? So here we go, and, we're, and I'm gonna, I know this is fast paced. I drink way too much coffee, um, but I'm going to keep on rolling because I literally, I, I had like 28 minutes from the set, time I stepped up here. So I got to keep going. Jesus goes out of his way in Matthew 26, guys, to take a safe environment and make it very hostile, okay? He makes the moment so uncomfortable. Can we all agree just to kind of change this comfortable moment just for a few minutes? Like, I know that's what we want. I know, I know you want to be comfortable, but we have to take this comfortable moment and make it a little uncomfortable. Look at what Jesus does. We're going to track two people's lives, Judas and Peter, and we're going to look at the moments of great resolve in their life, because believe it or not, they both have them, as many people in Scripture do. We're going to look at the moment of great regret in their life, and we're going to look at the moment at which they both responded to how they, their resolve became regret and how did they respond. Resolve, regret, respond, resolve, regret, respond. You're going to hear it over and over again today. In Matthew 26, it says this, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. He's just chilling, eating dinner, right, with 12 of his buddies. And they were eating. He said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Okay, why do you got to do that, Jesus, right? Like, we're having dinner, and he just straight up looks at them and says, one of you will betray me, okay? I tell you the truth, one of them will betray me. They were very sad and began to say, say to him, one after another, surely not I, Lord, right? They're all making their resolve, surely not I, surely not I, surely not I. In a few minutes, the teens will say, surely not I. Snowblast, surely not I. Last week, a dad sat in here when Tommy was preaching and said, surely not I, God. I will reach out to my kids. Somebody in here, a parent, a grandparent, adults, aunts, uncles, made moments of resolve in here last week. What do we do when Monday morning comes, you know? Did the resolve play out? So here they are making the resolve, surely not I, Lord. Verse 23, Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely not I. He didn't say, yep, you're right, I'm going to go, I'm, it's me, I'm going to do it. I'm on my way right now. I'm going to do it. No, he did what we all do in these moments. You look at Christ and you make this moment of resolve and he says, surely not I, God. Surely not I. I just spent three years with you, Christ. You poured into me. You invested into me. Guys, this wasn't just some run-of-the-mill guy. He was one of the 12. And, and, and I hope you get now at this point that what I'm going to try to do in a few minutes is show you that it happens to the best of them. You know, it happens to everyone, okay? Peter's moment of resolve. Look at this, Matthew 26. It says this, then Jesus told them, in verse 31, then Jesus told them, this very night, you will fall away on account of me. Now, at this point, he's talking to all of them, not just Peter. He's telling all of them, you will fall away, okay? <laughs> just like if he was standing here with us, even though we want a comfortable moment, he would look at us and tell all of us, at some point, you will fail. That's what Jesus did. He takes these hallmark moments and just makes them, he just blows them up and says, at some point, you'll fail me. At some point, you'll fail me. At some point, you'll make resolve and you'll fail. That's what he does. He's just good at it. This very night, you will all fall away on account of me, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, now look at Peter, he's always the quick one at the mouth, right? Peter replied, even if I fall away on account of you, and I never will. He says, even if I do, but I never will, right? He says, I tell you the truth, 
uh, I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter, Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And the other disciples said the same. Peter's moment of resolve, when Jesus says, you will deny me, he says, no, I won't. I will die before I deny you, Jesus. I would die before that would happen. Okay? And, and, and look, this, this is the idea. When you look at this, you don't realize it, and because we all focus on Peter, but they're all sitting there, and they all go along with Peter, and they all say, we will all follow you until our deaths if we have to. There are many examples of great resolve in Scripture, guys. The Hebrew children in the fiery furnace, right? Moment of great resolve, and they went through with it. Daniel obeys the law of God and ends up in the lion's den, right? That's a moment of great resolve, and he follows up on it. I'm not saying that great resolve can't be followed up on. Ruth, she goes to the crossroads of Moab, right? And she's given an opportunity to go back to her old life, the old life of sin, to Moab, the armpit of God. And she stands there and says, don't even ask me to leave. I won't go back. Where you go, I'll go. Where, you, where your God is is where I will go. She has this moment of resolve, and she follows through on it. I don't want you to think that every commitment is broken, but many of them are. Many of them are. In these two guys' lives, their moment of resolve lasted no more than a night. It lasted no more than a night, not even 24 hours. How many of you have had these moments, guys? These moments of great resolve, only to realize literally 40 minutes later, when Tommy spoke about the tongue, I was, he spoke, I made a mo I, I resolved right over there in one of those seats right there that I was going to be careful of my tongue. And two and a half hours later, I was in Home Depot and a dude blocked the aisle for like 30 minutes. And my tongue was sharp, man. My tongue was really sharp. It was like, man, ain't there a midnight crew like comes in in the middle of the night and does this? So like the customers aren't here. And uh, it was sharp. And my moment of resolve took two and a half hours. Some resolution, eh? Some resolved human being I am, eh? Uh, Jesus, I promise, right? And fill in the blank. You just fill in your own blanks. Jesus, I promise. Fill in the blank. When I was a little boy, I had a, uh, my best friend was four years older than me. Parents, that's a terrible idea because um, you learn way too much, way too little. So I was eight and he was 12. And he went to Sunday school and he heard that you can only sin 490 times, right? You get where he gets that from? Jesus says, how many times, you know, do you forgive your brother? And Peter says seven. And Jesus, you know, wants to show Peter that he's just dumb and he talks too fast. So he says, no, Peter, 70 times seven, right? So my buddy is smart enough. He's 12 and I'm eight. And I didn't know my multiplication tables. He says 490. It was Glenn Brown, Larry. You should have taught him better than that. Okay. Um, so he does this, right? So I pretty much figure, listen to me, this is the truth. At three sins a day, I pretty much had a third of the year. That's what I had, okay? A third of the year, I was good. And then the other two-thirds of the year, I spent making resolutions to God in my bed, telling him I would never again, right? Like, that's what I did, because I knew I only had 490, and I could add, you know? And I'm like, wow, this is, I'm on a bad track here, right? I'm, like, using up my sin counter really fast. But we all do that, and we make these resolute moments and these resolute commitments to God, and then we fall right back in the same patterns. As I grew older, the sin just got bigger, and the resolution had to be, you know, the resolution was stronger. And, and what's worse than that, the regret of the resolution of denying Christ was greater. The worse the sin got, you know. Look, look at Judas's moment of regret. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived with him. He was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs. They sent him from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. Go at once to Jesus, Judas said. Greeting, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus replied, friend, do what you came to do. You haven't even left the chapter of the Bible 
where he said, surely not I. You're not even out of the chapter yet. His moment of resolve when he was face to face with Christ was when he was in the intimate moment when Christ was demanding a decision from him. It was resolve. But not even hours later, he was handing his Savior over to, to the Romans so that he could be killed. Look at Peter's moment. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said, but he denied it before them. Okay? No, I, no, I wasn't. I don't know what you're talking about, he said in verse 71. Then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people, There, this fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. For your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the words that Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He went outside and wept bitterly. Matthew 26, Matthew 26. I will not, Jesus. I will not, even to the point where I would die before I disown you. About 15 verses later. There you are. Resolve, regret. Resolve, regret, resolve, regret, resolve, regret. It's a cycle. And I know you're wondering, how does all this fit with college adults? I'm going to get there. So what do we do when resolve becomes regret, right? Just after Peter's moment of great resolve, before you even get to this, where he says, I will die, I will die, Peter makes this great moment, right? Jesus, not me, I'll die. And all the other disciples say, me too. And he says, uh-uh, you'll be scattered abroad. You wait and see. After that, before he even gets to this moment of regret, he falls asleep on Jesus three times. You know? And, and I know you've been there. I know all of us have made these moments where literally lethargic you sets in and no longer does resolve matter. How many of us have repeated this very same pattern, guys? Promises made to Jesus that no sooner than they leave our lips, resolve disappears and it becomes regret. No sooner than we even think about it. No sooner than we even leave the retreat. No sooner than we leave the worship service. No sooner than, you know, than Pastor Mike gets it out and the altar call is done and we're sitting at dinner. And resolve becomes regret because you've, you've purposed in your heart to do something right for God. But you just, somehow you just regret. Just regret sets in. That brings us back to the 80-20 vacuum, guys. Back to an honest assessment of the venture capitalists and the seemingly risky investments that we, Curry Church, have made into the lives of young people. It's the reason the 80% leave and don't come back until their lives are broken. This is the reason. When I was praying and I was asking God and I would ask him every time I sat down to pray, God, why did Amy Myers give me that? Because I didn't want to know this information. But now that I do, why do I know that 80% of our young people are leaving? And the overwhelming response that God kept giving me was because of resolve that turns into regret. And regret becomes so great that they can't even get back. L listen, at that point, when they're at that point when resolve, regret, resolve, regret, resolve, regret, and they've lived that cycle over and over again, look at what happens. They come to a place where their belief and their behavior are in conflict. So they adjust their creed to fit their deeds, and they just quit coming back. That's what happens. And, and in that cycle somewhere, guys, they just adjust, they, they'll say, oh, I have an intellectual uh, discovery about scripture and I no longer believe it can be intellectually possible probably not 
It started with a lifestyle pattern. Well, well, I have a problem with the church. They're all a bunch of hypocrites, right? And then they just don't come back. No, this is what's happened to the 80%. They've went through this cycle. Your friends that you were in youth group with, that you raised your hands with and said, yes, we will never. And then they went out and did. They're living in regret, I assure you. I can promise you. The children that you raised that you're wondering, how did I raise them in the church? And now they're gone and I can't get my kids to bring back my grandkids. They're living with regret. And, and, as a, and, and I know that, that's, that sounds terrible, and that sounds like, um, I know I'm treading on really nervous ground here, but the reality is, if you raise them up in the truth, and they know the truth, and they're living against the truth, they're living with regret. For teens and young adults, these moments of resolve and regret may be marked by commitments to purity and failure, commitments to honesty and failure, commitments to honor their parents and failure, commitments to not do drugs and alcohol and failure, commitments to share Christ and failure, Commitments to please their, please their youth pastor, and they fail, and it just becomes more and more regret. For adults, these moments of resolve and regret may have played out in a very real way this week. Tommy challenged all of us to invest, 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 and we left ready for the challenge. But the busy week takes over, and our time gets away, and Sunday's resolve becomes Monday's regret. Resolve, regret. Resolve, regret. Another broken hallmark moment, James. Thanks a lot, right? That's, the, that's why this moment can't be safe. In a few moments, I want to ask all of us, all the betrayers and the deniers, all those who resolved and broke their word, all those who said, surely not me, I would die before I would do that, but you did. I'm going to ask all of us to take an honest assessment of your betrayal, of your regret, of your resolve that's broken, and we have to do that. That's why this can't be one of those fluffy moments, okay? The crowd says, James, what about Moses? He had the resolve to lead the Jews out of Egypt. Yeah, but he also hid in the desert over the regret of killing a man for years. The crowd says, James, what about Samson? He had the resolve to knock the pillars of a pagan temple down and killed hundreds in the process. Yeah, but before that, he was rotting in jails with his eyes gouged out, and his greatest pain was the regret of Delilah. The crowd would say, James, Esther had the resolve to approach the king, knowing her life would be in danger, to save her people from extinction, right? Yeah. But before that, she was li living with the regret of two missed opportunities to speak to the king. You see, th this cycle is all over in scripture. You see Peter live it. You see Judas live it. You see Esther live it. You see Moses live it. People do things that are against what they resolve to stand in front of God and say, I would never do that. And then Moses kills a guy. And he has to live in the regret of that in the desert. Somehow, all these biblical examples found a way to take their great regret from the past the pain of the past failure in their Christian walk, and rewrite their story to become lives of great resolve. Somehow they did that, and that's what we have to do today. So what do we do? What does a holy God, the God that remains resolved, expect from us? Here's Judas's moment of response, okay? As we track these two people's life, as we track their resolve, their regret, look at his response. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people came to the decision to put Jesus to death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, returned the 30 silver coins, and the chief priests and the elders said, I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us, they replied. That is your responsibility. So Jesus, Ju Judas threw the money at the temple and left, and he went away, and he hanged himself. That is how Judas responded to his regret. Here's Peter's. Take a look at this. Peter's moment of response. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. 
He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off. He jumped into the water and he swam to shore to meet Jesus. That was Peter's response to his regret. Judas's response tells us a lot about the 80% that leave the church. Could it be that they view their sin as a betrayal of the Savior? And, and, and I don't want to talk about physical suicide, but I do want to talk about spiritual suicide. Uh, it, they are committing to some degree when they leave and they don't come back. When they leave and they go away, they're committing a form of spiritual suicide where they've cut themselves off from a living, growing entity called the church and they don't come back. Do they realize that all sin is a betrayal against God? Do we even realize that? We look at Judas as the betrayer, but do we realize when our resolve becomes regret, when our resolve becomes sin, that it is as very much as a betrayal against the Savior as Judas's betrayal was? Do we realize that? We're all betrayers. We're all deniers. Let me ask you this. Could Jesus have forgiven Judas? Don't answer. There's not one. I just want you to think about it. Could he have forgiven Jesus? Or could Jesus have forgiven Judas? Let me say to you this. Judas's regret kept him from going to Jesus. That's the bottom line. Judas's regret kept him where he was and kept him in a place where he could not go to Christ. But when you look at Peter's response, Peter's regret, I've preached this, this will be the third time I've preached a, sim a similar message to a body of people. Uh, hopefully never to you. I can't remember. But maybe, maybe this is a repeat. Just kidding. Um, Judas, or Peter's response tells us something about him. I want you to look, and I never noticed this before. The other two times I preached it, and pastor, pastor's probably like, well, of course, James, it's right there in front of you. Um, I'm a carpenter. I don't get a lot of this stuff. I have no formal education whatsoever. Could you pull those verses back up again, Dottie, the Peter's response verses? Um, when you look at Peter's response to his betrayal of Christ, I want you to look at what it did to him. It took him right back to the same boat on the same sea where Jesus found him in the first place. Isn't that crazy? His regret, his betrayal of Christ took him away from God and took him back to the same old ordinary life where Jesus found him in the first place. And, and, and I think so many people live right here. I, I, I don't think the 80-20 the that we're talking about at Kirby Church, and I can't speak nationally, I don't think those people are where Judas is at. I don't think that the 80% that are leaving Kirby are there yet. I really don't. Because I think we've done a great job grounding them. I think we've done a great job putting the word of God into them. And they're out there, yes. They're out in the world, yes. But I think they're doing a lot more of what Peter did. I think they've just went back to the old comfortable place. I think they've, their sin has taken them back to the place where Christ found them first of all. You know, and that's where they're lingering. That's where they're hanging. And all they have to do is have this moment where they see Christ and they realize, unlike Judas, who me, I tend to believe that if Judas had asked, Jesus would have forgiven him. I believe that. I can't tell you that for sure, but I believe it. But here Peter is. Peter realizes at that moment, all he's got to do is get to Christ, is get to Christ, and he'll forgive him. He'll forgive him. Uh, the boat and the fishing just show how Peter's regret took him right back to the ordinary life that Jesus had already rescued him from. When Peter saw Jesus, he left regret in the past and ran to his forgiveness. 
He left all the regret in the past and he ran to his forgiveness. He like didn't even give it any time. He just, bam, don't dock the boat, I'm jumping in. And he jumped in and got to Jesus however he could do it. That's what regret forced him to do. Resolve, regret, respond. Resolve, regret, respond. I want to tell you this without a shadow of a doubt. We will all have moments of great resolve. Amen? I hope. I hope you come here and you expect to make some resolute commitment to Christ at some point. We will all undoubtedly, without a shadow of a doubt, have a moment of regret. There is no doubt in my mind. You will sin. You will fail your Savior. And the Bible says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, right? He didn't say while we were yet doing it all perfectly, he died for us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. You will have moments of resolve. You will have moments of regret. And I want you to know Jesus is concerned about all that, but he's mostly concerned about your response. Will you respond in a way that Judas respond? Cut yourself off spiritually, move farther away from the Savior, get as far away as you can, or will you respond like Peter did? Will you respond in a way that says, I want to jump in, I want to get to Christ, I know he'll forgive me, I know I've had these moments of resolve, they produce regret in my life, but can I just get to Christ? He'll forgive me, I know he will. And, and when you read on later, and we don't have time to do it, but Jesus just throws his arms around him, will you feed my sheep? Yes. Will you feed my sheep? Yes. Peter, will you feed my sheep? Yeah. I'll do it. I'll do it. Um, to end on, on this, this note, when I was in India, um, I, I watched them train elephants. Um, and in India, when they're training an elephant, this is what they do. When, the ba- when it's a little baby elephant, a little cute elephant, I don't know if there is such thing, but, you know, the baby elephant is right there. They take this large chain with a big shackle, and they put it around its leg, and they chain this thing up with this guard. Like, like this cord right here, would be sufficient to chain down a baby elephant, right? He's just a little fellow. You could just do that or whatever, chain him down, tie him to a tree, whatever. But in India, they take this, this, this baby elephant, they put this massive chain around it, and then they tie it to this massive tree, and the elephant stands there all day and rocks forward against the weight of the chain, the baby elephant does. And it's over, over time, the more it rocks, the more it comes forward, the more that chain, it just reinforces in his mind over and over and over and over and over again, I cannot get free. The craziest thing, though, is when, you're, when you see them, they're all, the, all the babies are there, and they've got pen falling, um, and they've got the, ch- the big chain around their neck, all these little baby elephants. All the adult elephants in the pens have this tiny twine, a little rope, tied around their ankle, and it's in a stake that's about this big, driven in the ground. And I want us to understand that Satan has done the very same things in our lives. Okay, Donna, I don't know where the worship band is at. They probably need to start making their way up. Um, Satan has done the very same thing. He has taken regret, and it is like a heavy chain around our leg, and we've pounded against it for so long that we're just so convinced that we're not going anywhere. I'm not getting anywhere with this thing around my leg. I'm not getting anywhere with this regret from my past. I'm not getting anywhere with this pain from my past. God, I've made too many commitments. I've told you too many times I would stay pure. I've told you too many times that I would love my wife unconditionally. I've told you too many times that I would watch my tongue. I've said too many times, too many things, too many moments of resolve that have ended in regret, God. And the chain around our leg, the chain of regret, it just holds us there and holds us there and holds us there. And what we don't realize is truly... It's just a little twine, you know? It's just a little rope, and all you got to do is get out of the boat like Peter did and respond in a way that says, Christ, I know I've had moments of failure. I'm a betrayer. I'm a denier. That's me. That's who I am. And you know what?
what? I'm proud to be a group of a, with a bunch of betrayers and deniers uh, that respond correctly to the call of God in their life, that respond and say, yes, I've denied you, yes, I've betrayed you, but I want to give it all back to you right here. I want to give it all back to you in this moment. Teenagers, it would probably look like this. Your resolves just failed, and you just, you just need to resolve again and keep recommitting and recommitting and recommitting. College students, probably your regret just keeps you away from more commitment. You're sitting there like, yeah, I've done all those things. I've been to Snowblast. I've been to every retreat. I went to Christian school. I made all kinds of commitments to Christ. And look at where I am now. And, and, and yeah, you're here. You're here, and I praise God for that. Praise God that regret hasn't driven you to the place where Judas cut himself off from Christ. Don't do that, man. Just keep coming back. Just keep feeling that little bit inside of you. But this is what I want to say. You're being held in that seat, though, by regret. You're not doing anything for Christ. We invested in you like crazy so you could do something for Christ. We went out on a limb and poured into you so you could be productive for Jesus in this church. And you're doing nothing because regret holds you in your seat. Parents, I know this is tough, but I know there's parents in here that are living in the regret of how they raise their kids. They're thinking, man, if I'd only done this, or if I could have just done this, or if I'd have just sent them to this school, or if I would have just did more of this. And you know what? Your kids don't need to see you or me loathing in our pity about how we raise them. They need to see our res resolute commitment to Christ today. Back to him and say, God, I, I don't know. I, I may have made all kinds of mistakes in my past with my kids, but I want to resolve right now that I'm going to live this day forward, investing and pouring back into their lives. As these guys sing, I want us to think about how you'll respond. Res resolve, it's a given. Please make resolute commitments to Christ and don't stop making them. Regret, it's a given. It's a given. If you're going to live big for God, you're going to say some things to God that later on you're going to regret. God, I'll give it all to you. I'll never. God, if you'll just forgive me this once, I'll never again. And then the next thing you know, man, don't let regret hold you in your seat. Respond to God this morning. Respond to God.
Jesus, we come before you right now. Oh God, I pray that you would help us to take this message, dear Father. The resolve, the regret, the response. I pray that we would leave, dear Father, that we would leave that which must be left with you at the altar. God, I pray that you would help us, dear Father. There's many of us in this room right now praying. We're praying, first of all, God, that we would respond to you. Then others are praying, God, for someone who we love dearly. gift to you this morning, this gift of worship, this gift of an offering from that which you blessed us with. And I pray, God, that you would help us to be reminded, dear God, of your love, that we don't have to walk, dear Father, with regret, and there is forgiveness to you. There's forgiveness from you, and may we respond to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. practical announcements. Tonight is um, at my house is the, is the night that we call Elevate. It's the night that we take the 2011 grads and we bring them up to college ministry. Um, but that doesn't mean that only 2011 grads are invited. Um, at 18, the orchard is the college ministry. We just call it a college ministry. You don't have to go to college to be there. The demographic is 18 to a, about 28 uh, single people. And we meet right there for, on Sunday mornings for Sunday morning uh, Sunday school. Unfortunately, I don't preach messages like this in there on Sunday morning, uh, but we teach, we learn about the Word of God. Um, and tonight is Elevate, just so you know, Elevate is again the night that we raise our seniors up. So we want to bring them up and show them, look, we've invested into you, we've poured into you, and now we're not just going to kick you out the door and say, go have at it. We're going to try to keep pouring into and investing into young adults, okay? Um, we're not going to treat them like kids. We don't plan big events for them. They plan them themselves. Uh, we don't plan... St- missions trips for them. They plan them themselves. Uh, So I'm thankful for that, and that's what we do. So to elevate tonight, 6 o'clock, my house, if you're in that 18 to 28 demographic, I'll hang out up here. Feel free to come to my house. Even if you've never been to the orchard, you have no idea what it's about, this is a good night to meet, uh, meet the people that are in the group. So 
panel. Amen. I got a couple of announcements. Um, Costa Rica meeting tonight at 6 p.m. at Pastor Mike's house. The dates for the Costa Rica missions trip are January 21st through 28th of 2012. Um, just two more quick things. On September 18th, it's a big day at Kirby. We'll be having a meet and greet directly after the Sunday morning, second service Sunday morning. And so instead of Sunday night, uh, all that information is in your bulletin. And we also have Rachel Dennis with us on that day. And uh, she's a wonderful, wonderful young lady. It's on the back of the bulletin. Describes all that she does um, to minister in the place uh, where she's at. And we'll, we'll have uh, she'll have the goods here that have been handcrafted from people who she's ministering to in those countries. So it's going to be a wonderful morning where you, you'll be able to buy some wonderful gifts. And it's cheap. I bought some. I bought my wife. Uh, she bought herself uh, a really, a really, a really cool piece of jewelry. And uh, she loves, uh, Amy loves her story. She loves spending time with Rachel. And uh, she just does a wonderful job for 10 bucks. She got a really super sweet ring. And then she also ministered to, to someone in, a whole, in another country who's being uh, loved and ministered to by Rachel's ministry. And so, so that's September the 18th. If you guys stand up, we're just going to sing you guys out with the song he loves. You guys are dismissed.